Welcome to the Readings Podcast. My name is Stella Charles and I'm the Marketing and Events Coordinator for Readings. Today I'm here with novelist Kayla Ray Whitaker. Welcome to the podcast, Kayla. Thanks for having me, Stella. This is great. It's yeah. such a pleasure. I'm really <laughs> excited to chat to you. Kayla was born and raised in Kentucky. She's a graduate of the University of Kentucky and of New York University's MFA program, which she attended as a Jack Kent Cook graduate scholar. She currently lives in Louisville. The Animators, her first novel, tells the story of Sharon Kisses and Mel Vaughan, who meet in college. Both visual arts majors with obvious talent, Sharon is more straight-laced and introspective, while Mel is manic and the life of any party. They share the same unquenchable thirst for cartoons and comics and know what they want to do for the rest of their lives. Animate. What else is there? The Animators follows these two fascinating but flawed women over the course of the next decade of their lives. Theirs is both a firm friendship and a creative partnership, intense and often fraught. Congratulations, Kayla, on this incredible novel. I love this book so much. I first read it back in February and I haven't been able to get Sharon and Mel out of my head ever since. I think they're some of the most original characters I've met in fiction in a really long time and um, I found it a joy to spend time with them as I read the book and in reflecting on the book ever since I finished. Thank so, you. You're very that welcome. Means, that means a lot to me. No, it really does. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask about Sharon and Mel and how these amazing voices came to you and who came first and, and did you know what story you wanted to tell with them? Well, the uh, Sharon and Mel first... They came to me voice first, which is kind of a funny thing. I could very clearly hear Mel's voice in my ear. Um, and um, the first scene that actually ever occurred to me was uh, uh, the scene in which they're they're brainstorming for their film Nashville Combat. And Mel's telling Sharon about her childhood in Florida. And she's talking about throwing marshmallows to the alligators in the swamp. <laughs> and the swamp's actually clapping their mouths shut over it. And, you know, about the little boy who lived next door and how he got bit by a rat and had to get rabies shots. And he became a cautionary tale. And, and so I could hear I could hear Mel's voice very, very clearly, kind of warm and broken and sly. Um, but I knew Sharon um, almost as as this sounding board for Mel, mm -hmm. but in a way because I could almost feel the way that Sharon was absorbing Mel's story and kind of letting it sink in. I almost felt as if. I knew Sharon more intimately, despite the fact that I heard Mel's voice the most clearly. Um, but uh, so that was the first scene. But it, it took a few scenes for me to realize that uh, that the story was about the both of them, yeah. and that it was the the friendship was built in large part um, on the bricks of these two women telling each other over and over again in bits and pieces their life stories. They're kind of building themselves and in, in one another, and that was that was how their friendship kind of kind of bloomed. And I think that it was really striking that the way in which their first their friendship first began on paper. I think it it began with the most beautiful 
aspect. All the warts and wrinkles came later, and there are plenty <laughs> of those because it's like they're married. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially when we meet them. They've been together and they've been partners for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very much like they're married. There's a lot of strife there. There's resentment and history and mm-hmm. all the things that come with years, basically. Uh, so that was, uh, yeah, voice first. That's always a, a good sign for any story, I guess. That's great. Yeah. Was it clear or did that come through drafting that you were going to tell um, the animators through Sharon's first-person narration? I knew right away. Yeah, I knew right away from that. It, it was what felt the most organic, not to use that term, but the way in which... And, and, and somewhere... Somewhere along the way, I think I may have tried third person, but I knew within a couple of paragraphs, it's like, that's that's not the story. It doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit. Um, so, And I wonder if, um, because I'm working on a new project now, and it's actually in third person. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder if that third person is going to give me a little more distance than I had when I was writing the animators, because the experience of writing the animators was yeah. very, very close. It, was... it feels like that reading it, too. It feels so personal, like uh, you're right in there with with them, even though it's such a br- expansive story, I yeah. think. Oh, good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, for a long time. <laughs> it's funny. The animators has been out in the world for about six months now, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And it... Um, it's, it's still it's still a shock to me that Mel and Sharon exist outside of my own head, you know. <laughs> and it's they were with me and and me alone for so long, and then they were just with me and and my agent, the associates working in my agent's office, you know, as we worked on it together. And that was me and my agent, my editor, working together on it, and now they're they're out on their own. So I still feel kind of shocked <laughs> that you're sharing them with everyone. When I hear people say it, yeah. So, and now no. you're over here in Australia and there are people who've already read and loved it. I think, yeah, they're no longer yours. I feel the same way about them as a reader. That <laughs> feels Thank like you. my own personal <laughs> time with them was special to me. How how was it for you considering how many years you were drafting the animators? I, I read somewhere that you were a pretty intense drafter and worked on it for a lot of your 20s. I did, yeah. And, and I was, to be fair, I was working on other things. Um, so it wasn't seven years exclusively yeah. on the animators, but it was seven years from start to finish. Um, so in that time, I completed uh, another book that is still in a desk drawer. And it was actually my thesis at NYU. And I started seriously drafting the animators after having done like a quick first draft uh, when I was in graduate school. Um, When I was sending my first book, I think, out to representation kind of half-heartedly, like, Mm. well, let's see if this book is going to go. And and I'm glad that it didn't go in the form that it did um, because it wasn't wasn't done cooking yet, basically. Um, So... um, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in uh, when you're working on a project, uh, drafting your edits, um, drafting, making making complete drafts, basically, and then setting it aside and giving yourself time. I, I think it was Zadie Smith actually mm-hmm. said, you know, step away from the vehicle, you know, because in order to make really informed edits, you have to have some sort of distance. You have to have new eyes uh, with which to look at your manuscript. So... So the animators was, I can't believe it was, it was my B project yeah. for a while, which I can't quite believe because, you know, the, the girls are so dear to me. But I also worked full time. I was a secretary. I, I worked in an office, a couple of different offices. 
Um, and I would, uh, I would, I was living in Brooklyn, New York at the time, and I would take the the N train into Manhattan, and I would like it was like the the seven thirty rush, you know, yeah, so yeah. just where people were packed on the train like sardines. <laughs> Can't move. Yeah, yeah, and I would I would taught myself how to kind of hang from the bar like this, and then to hold my manuscript like this, and then to wear jackets with pockets or purses with like side pockets and put pens in there. And whenever the train stopped or stalled, I would kind of make my notes. That sounds like an extreme sport or something. Yeah, it was, it took some practice. Intense editing, yeah. My balance got really good. It was almost like a yoga lesson. Amazing. It was the end train lesson. And was that because like you wanted to be working on this? Like it didn't feel like a slog. I've only got half an hour commute to get this done because I have to or did it feel more like it was coming from your heart like yeah. uh, you really just wanted to work on the story yeah it, it felt like it felt like pleasure oh, just every great. time I could you know and I would write on my lunch breaks like I would take my little lean cuisine microwave dinner and I'd find a hole somewhere in the building and I would mm. just go write or edit I would work those those hours yeah um and it it felt like a pleasure. I, I could have been doing other things, um, but um, I didn't want to be doing anything else really. So I love that. <laughs> Before we go too much further, I'd love if you wouldn't mind reading a small section of it just so our listeners can get a feel for um, the voice. Sure. I could start off with uh, our filthy, dirty party. Yes, yeah. sounds good. <laughs> our filthy, dirty party. We're hiding in the powder room at the St. Regis Hotel. This is what working in what amounts to a rat's nest for the past decade has done to us, I think, looking at our reflections in the mirror. Ten years in a piece of crap studio in the armpit of Bushwick with full view and sound of the JMZ train, giving ourselves humpbacks craning over our drafting tables, camels drooping from our mouths, passing expired packages of peeps back and forth in the dark. The work has made me forget how to act like a person. We're not fit to go out and socialize with the fancy people, all Cheeto-stained hands and dilated pupils. Here, Mel hands me her pipe, the one shaped like a squirrel she picked up from a troubled-looking village store that sold cheap dildos and off-brand candy. Chug it, she demands. Pull on that motherfucker like you mean it. We, the recipients of the American Coalition of Cartoonists and Animation Professionals Hollingsworth Grant for our first full-length feature, Nashville Combat, are due on stage in less than an hour. And while we're happy, nay, grateful, this is not exactly our crowd, hence something to take the edge off. I straighten, check the mirror again. We look better than usual, damn near swank even. I've managed to squeeze myself into a cocktail, get up, wires and clips strapping boobs up and in, stylized girdle crackling my ribs like potato chips, all with my sort of maybe boyfriend Beardsley in mind, despite the fact that I haven't heard from him in over a week. We are known entities for what we do, which specifically is make small, thoughtful cartoons and out-of-mainstream animation shorts intended for a thinking woman's audience, as mentioned in the New York Times, Bust, Bitch, Dying Broke and Lonely Quarterly, Shit Burger Review, et al. Mel's in a tux, hair all butched up, specs folded away in her pocket. She's the dashing one. 
She's crafting a joint for later, running her tongue along the adhesive side of the rolling paper, pulls the joint away and begins to twist with her fingers, looks at me in the mirror. What? You look like a dikey George Burns. Words hurt. She slips the joint into her breast pocket. You look pretty, Sharon. How's that make you feel? You lie. Good. Amazing. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having the, the book. So. Oh, you're so welcome. I'll, br- I'll bring it for tonight, I promise. <laughs> I've got one, don't oh, worry. No, it's okay. <laughs> thank you. Uh, I love that. I think hearing you read the dialogue even makes it, like, I think... Yeah, seems so much more alive to me, I think. Not just your accent, but just your rhythm, uh, the way that they speak. Yeah, I think that's a real skill, writing dialogue. And this is one of my favourite examples of dialogue I think I've read in a long time. Thank you. I love writing dialogue. It's really, really fun. And it's, especially when you're running workshops, like having people do dialogue exercises is one of the most active writing exercises that you can do. It's, it is my personal favourite. So, yeah. No, I'm glad you liked it. That's great. Um, I guess to get to the title of the novel, The Animators, um, why I love it so much is it's about two of my favourite things, female friendships or complicated friendships and relationships Mm -hmm. between women and women who are um, art makers or makers of something that they're really passionate about. Um, Why animation? Um, Particularly because it is such a visual art and a huge challenge then for a writer to convey um, not just the work, like the two films that that are kind of created over the course of the novel, um, uh, and not just explained throughout the novel, but we also need to believe as a reader that um, that they're amazing and worthy of the recognition that they receive from the animation community, which I think right. we do, but that's a huge challenge. Yeah. How did you it's how did you decide on animation as your art form? Yeah. It's a huge challenge. Um and it's uh well I'm I'm a huge fangirl. Um I came to animation um largely because uh I loved it and I always wanted to do it, but I have no visual aptitude. And, um, you know, I watched a lot of cartoons when I was a kid, of course, and uh, where I grew up in rural Kentucky, I think I was I was really the first generation to have cable television. Mm -hmm. And so it felt like we had this there was this lifeline to the outside world in in a part of the country that I think. um, And this is not you know, this is, you know. Depends on who you ask, Um, you know, not necessarily true that we're culturally isolated, but it did feel like there was this lifeline kind of going out into the world that maybe wasn't there before. Mm. And it was through having 36 channels, which now seems minuscule. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the the older I, I got, I, I moved past uh, Nickelodeon and old Warner Brothers shorts. And uh, I watched a lot of uh, alternative cartoons that were shown on MTV. Mm. I watched a lot of Eon Flux and the Max and, and uh, even PBS actually showed some kind of alternative animation. Um, and uh, it was something that kind of hooked me. It felt like this lifeline to something mm. alien and beautiful. And even when I was in college, I discovered Ralph Bakshi. And, you know, I started, wa- I started reading a lot of R. Crumb. And so probably the Fritz the Cat connection was mm. how I came to like 70s alt animation. Um, and I started just watching whatever I could get 
my hands on. And I actually, my undergraduate thesis at UK was, um, it was on the, um, the iconography of the hillbilly in cartoon animation, which the American hillbilly is something that pops up a lot yeah. in um, a, a startling amount, in fact, in American animation. Uh, so it was something that, you know, like my fangirldom kind of, you know, edged over into the academic. Um, but what what fascinated me, I think, is the way in which animation was such physical work. Mm. You know, you have your you have your drafting board. You kind of have you know the you know the the way in which you work with your hands. Yeah. You know, and kind of that skill building. That unlike for writers, you actually have to have some sort of coordination with another part of your body. Yeah, and that's harder than it sounds. And and I think that that's something that that's. In my opinion, maybe just a God-given skill because um, that's it's something that I, I don't have. As a writer, most of this is mental. All you have to do with your hands is hold a pencil. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just just well enough to get words out and nothing more or <laughs> typing on a on a laptop. So it was it was a way to vicariously live that life. But also with and I did a lot of research because I wanted to get the details exactly right because I'm an outsider. Mm. You know, I'm not an animator. Um, but I, I wanted to I wanted to get it exactly right. But a lot of the research was fun because it was something I loved and was fascinated with. Um, so I think um, what's amazing about the novel is I felt like someone growing up. Um, I grew up without a television, apparently because I watched cartoons too much. Really? And then when I was about three, my parents destroyed the TV because they were worried wow. that it was becoming a problem, me, them when waking up to three. me staring in front of the, at the TV in the morning. So how long were you without a television? Uh, until probably the end of high school, late high school. And so I missed the things that people were talking about, like The Simpsons and South Park and things like that at yeah. primary school. And I always felt, um, it's probably not related, but that I'm quite visually illiterate almost. Um, but what I found amazing reading this novel is how drawn I was to go and look up so many of the references. Like you weave so many references of amazing animators throughout and it's very clear, I think, to you and therefore to the reader who Mel and Sharon are influenced by. And to kind of start to build a sense of what their work might look like, it was really fun to kind of put the book down after a chapter and go onto YouTube and look up some of, um, yeah, some of this work. And it's so available and accessible. I think I even found you have like a, a Pinterest or a Tumblr with some of your like... <laughs> I need to update that. I love it. <laughs> I'm, I'm really bad at social media, which makes me... Uh, a weird millennial. Yeah, I think. <laughs> don't worry. Yeah, one of one of the things it's that probably I, healthy. I don't know. It's probably bad for business. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, I think nerddom is comprehensive, mm. which is something that I've always loved. So people who you know, like people who are really invested in comic books, people who are really invested in animation, like it, it, it may start with your particular context in your particular time mm. period you know say with Nickelodeon the first cartoon you ever really really loved was maybe Ren and Stimpy and that was one of the first things that yeah. I loved really and still love um but um but you know the girls go back in time they try to they try to you know get a more they get they try to attain a longer view for themselves and it's in a way it's the way in which they kind of bond with each other is is through through these cultural references, and it, and it means more than just the cultural references. It means something about who they are 
you are what you like in a on a certain level and not totally of course that's mm-hmm. not entirely who you are but you know I, I think it's they they both they they speak to their childhoods they speak to their childhoods as being female and as being kind of weird as a female they weren't they weren't really great girl fits and the adults around them made sure that they knew it and were somewhat censured for it and so when they start talking about these, when they start talking about, you know, Ren and Stimpy and Clutch Cargo and Ralph Bagshi movies, you know, they're, you know, it's it's more than just a, a throwaway cultural reference or something that, you know, makes them look a certain way to other people. It's it's not that. It's it's a bridge to somebody else. You know, it's forging this this connection with somebody else that that I think the both of them kind of missed. In a way, there was a very core loneliness in both mm-hmm. Sharon and Mel, and that's, I think they bond. They they make their bond on top of that really deep abiding loneliness, and they do their best to get shed of it, and I think they do to a certain extent with, with one another. But I love the cartoons, but the cartoons are, you know, I think at the heart of the story, the story is more than the cartoons in a way, or the yeah. cartoons are more than themselves and they, in a way. And there's such a delicate balance, I think, in the animation um, and similarly in your book between uh, pretty dark mm-hmm. themes relating to the human experience broadly but mm-hmm. also a lot of humour and colour and, like, um, I guess manic chaos, which is sort of how Mel in particular covers up a lot of her traumatic past and I think it seems like what they maybe relate to or what really mm-hmm. resonates with them in a lot of the animation that they're drawn to um, is this real balancing act between some, like, an emotional core but a lot mm. of of real wit and, um, yeah, great dialogue and things like that, which I think this novel does too, balances both, which is, yeah, did you know, I guess, how epic in scale this book would be it's kind of it does read like one of those big novels with a lot of great pain without giving any spoilers away um I think female friendship books and you know the color on the cover and like definitely demonstrates that there is this you know witty dialogue and lots of um a lot of heart but yeah it's an epic book did you did you feel that way as you started? Did you know what was in store for Mel and Sharon? Uh, well, I knew what I wanted. I, I wanted to. I love kind of bigger, deeper books that you can fall into, and and even books that you read in a couple of days. And I know this. This is you know it's almost four hundred pages. But uh, whenever I hear people say it went like that, you yeah. know, I read this so quickly, it makes me feel really good. Yeah. Because I know it's it's always kind of a there's always kind of a risk with you know like novels that are of larger size but but I knew that that was what I wanted I wanted people to get lost in the story I wanted to get lost in the story I wanted to kind of you know wind my way through it and um, and so yeah it's uh, my my favorite books are ones that kind of achieve that like mm-hmm. I think one of the Oh, one of the novels that I've have been has been you know released in the past few years that I really loved. I loved A Little Life. Yeah, and it was kind of that. It, this is this is not the size of A Little Life, but <laughs> I, I wanted to when I read that book. It was like I'd like to achieve this same 
sort of expanse yeah you know the same yeah um idea of of time you know so that as a was, reader you step out and you feel like you've really lived alongside these people even if yes you read it in a day or um you know picked it up and put it down over a week like yeah. it is that feeling of of growing with them a mm. little bit because you're covering this this expanse in time that seems to flow seamlessly yes yeah yeah and I mean it's even with with a little life I remember you know even at the toughest points and that book gets really tough you know and there were times when I I was still living in Brooklyn and I had to get up and take walks Mm. I had to put it aside and say I need a break I I just I need to you know I need to assume my real life for a little bit Uh, but I couldn't wait to get back to it you know I just I, I was so invested and I was just so in love with it even when it seared yeah I couldn't wait to get back from it or back to it rather so yeah I think one thing I wanted to talk about um with you that I wonder if it's just my experience that this felt rare or whether it is maybe um the case in American literature at the moment but I found it so refreshing to read about these more rural or regional areas in America. Most books, I feel, tend to be set in, you know, L.A., Chicago, New York, and to, to, for you to take the reader to suburban Kentucky and the Florida backwaters, I found quite moving. Um, I know you're from Kentucky. Were mm-hmm. there stories set where you grew up? Had you read your life on the page before or was that something that you were drawn to write because there wasn't much of it around? or? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had, there are some really wonderful writers from Kentucky, um, and there's, there's some really wonderful, uh, literature from, you know, I guess I'm from the Appalachian part of Kentucky, I'm from East Kentucky. Um, and so that's, that's a region that the people are really fascinated with. It's, it's funny, uh, coming to Australia, a few people have actually mentioned to me when I, I tell them where I'm from, they say, oh, Justified, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I actually haven't, I haven't watched. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a region that is... I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of ripe with stories. I think I think Appalachian culture is very it's a very talkative culture. Um, so it's, but it was it was important to me to, I'm I'm drawn to literature that depicts rural America, you know. And so when whenever I read something about the rural South that hits the mark, I'm really interested in knowing why. And when it doesn't hit the mark. And it kind of veers into stereotype, which happens often enough. Like you yeah. get this really kind of flimsy, simplified, you know, um, two-dimensional view of, of what it's like to be in rural America. I'm always – I'm also interested in why and, and how exactly did this fall short. Um, and I think in order to depict any place with as much blood and fervor as it deserves um, – I think it needs to be complex. I think you need to encounter things that you wouldn't normally suspect, you know, and that's that's real life anywhere, basically. Um, so, so yeah, it was something that, and what I what I didn't see coming actually was the fact that in early 2017, that what rural America, what it meant to be in rural America and of rural America would be very different from what it was in late 2016 yeah, <laughs> because yeah. uh, Kentucky was one of the first states and, you know, on election night, and it was solidly Trump. 
Mm-hmm. And it was literally 6.05, I think, p.m. when, you know, the results were in. It was like, well, that's the first Trump state. And uh, it was, yeah, it's it's added another layer of complication to, to a story that I, I think traditionally has always been very complicated about representation and, um, you know, about, you know, stories and, uh, you know, what those stories mean for reality and what they mean for policy. You know, I mean, it's if you, you know, it it affects policy in a very real way, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So it's uh, tourism is something that you get a lot of dollars from tourism. And that's, uh, you know, (laughs) it's like, do people want to go to Trump country now? (laughs) Do it's they want interesting. To... Yeah, and it's. I I'm feel sure... like people want to read about Trump country, which is. Uh, yeah. I was definitely had that in my head as I read this book. We've seen, I guess, even in as an independent bookseller over here in Australia, mm-hmm. we've seen like a lot of interest in nonfiction books like Hillbilly Elegy and Deer Hunting with Jesus and all these kind oh, of books yeah. are selling well because people are obviously curious about about these kind of the areas in America that maybe don't get as much attention over here. But to read that through fiction, I found, or just to read about a place um, like Kentucky that I have no experience with through your book and to kind of just get a feel for um, a culture in a small way, I found quite powerful to do to do that in 2017, I guess, thinking about everything that's going on. Yeah. 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 And it's, I've been really excited in visiting Australia to, uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm doing a tour of metropolitan areas. I'm going to Melbourne and Brisbane and in Sydney, but also, you know, getting to see a little bit of rural Australia is very mm-hmm. interesting to me just yeah. to kind of, because I know there, there are parallels for this everywhere. I, I met a, I met a woman um, in, um, at the Byron Festival actually, and she was, she was lovely and she was Canadian originally. And uh, so I was, you know, I think I've mentioned like my hillbilly thesis uh, on the panel discussion. And, um, you know, and I mentioned to her that uh, I had known someone from Canada a long time ago, actually, when I was working on that thesis when I was in college. And, uh, you know, this Canadian said, oh, yeah, Newfies. You know, apparently that's their version of a hillbilly joke. And (laughs) this is something that every country has their hillbilly. Every country has their hillbilly joke. So it's I'm always on the lookout for it. It translates, yeah. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to chat about, um, kind of, which ties into your experience touring, and we were talking about it a little bit before this podcast, is um, it feels like in the that people are so uh, eager to, f- when they're reading a work of fiction, to still look for parallels between the characters and the author. And... Um, particularly because in this novel you're really grappling with the ethics of writing your own life story. Um, The two films um, that Sharon and Mel work on are both based on each of their lives respectively Mm -hmm. and deal with that murky territory of writing about your own family and having to weigh up whether or not you take into consideration whether your friends and loved ones and family members uh, take offence to the way they're portrayed in your in their work. Have you found that people are very quick to ask about how, uh, what elements of the animators are drawn from your own life, and that you're needing to kind of speak to that a lot on this on this book tour? 
I am. I am. And and I think it's a I think it's a pretty natural question for most novelists now. I know we were talking a little bit before we started recording that it's it seems like people people want to know the writers behind the books now and and want to know a little bit about mm. them and like who's who's bringing me this this story. And there's always this eagerness to see, you know, if the writer, you know, if the writer's life has any parallel with that story. And and often enough that is the case. Um for this book, I am not sharing um, and I, I thank God I'm not sharing because as much as I love her, her life is very complicated. Yeah. When I was younger, I used to pull some Mel-like behavior, you know, um, back in back in my drinking days. Um, so which I'm sure was tons of fun for everyone around me. Um, <laughs> um, so it's it's been it's been interesting. And I, I'm, I'm very quick to say, you know, I'm, it's it's a bit odd because I've written this story about these two people who are writing about their lives. But I did not, in fact, do that until in, until, you know, the um, the the BuzzFeed article. Yeah. That we were talking about. That was the first time I'd ever written. And that was an overt personal narrative. But that was the first time that I'd ever written about my life in a way that was just very glaring uh and um and it was really terrifying it was terrifying yeah so that's the questions definitely come up yeah yeah Yeah. the article um is called how i learned to date after drinking and it's on buzzfeed and i highly recommend it it's a really um beautiful vulnerable but still um your signature (laughs) witty and engaging piece to read um i feel like because that article um, I have seen it shared a lot. It was really successful online. People might have asked you a lot more about how that relates to um, to these characters, but it seems in writing Mel, if her antics reflect any of your antics back in your early 20s, then you have a lot of self-awareness about kind of what that was like for people, I guess. Was that confronting to write? It was. It was, yeah. And, you know, it's it's... That the people we are when we're young, you know, I mean, it's still that they're, they'll always be kind of curled up inside of us, won't they? So, yeah, it was it was interesting because before I wrote that that article, um, because I'd just written just written a book about it. But I was I was really uh, aware of the fact that, you know, and that I could write this story. But there there were people who would be directly affected potentially by this piece so I, I asked my husband about it of course mm-hmm. and he was totally fine with it he you know I was I, I was the only one who really carried that shame around he said he was very supportive and he said you I think this is great go go right ahead and also I asked my mother if it was okay with her and I, I think I shared it with her beforehand um, if anything because she still lives in the same in the town that I grew up in yeah and I knew that even 15 years, you know, I'm in my 30s. It's kind of, you know, I'd like to say, who cares? Nobody cares. But it's, you know, small town's a small town. And uh, I was worried that she would get some some guff, that somebody would say something nasty to her. And I said, is, is it okay if I put this out into the world? And will you be all right if somebody says something that they shouldn't to you? Um, and uh, she she said, yeah, go ahead which meant a lot to me. Um, so so that was definitely something that I, I did um, for it. It was very new to me. Mm. I think memoir writers are, are brave, yeah. are brave people. Um, so I have a lot of a lot of respect for, for memoirists and for people who are 
so upfront about what they've struggled with. It's a challenge, but I think in this issue about whether or not it's okay to tell your own story, even when it's shared, it's other people's story too, is such a, a murky one. And mm-hmm. I really love that um, over the course of the animators, the way that I think Sharon in particular is grappling with the ethics of this, it doesn't leave the reader with any clear answer. I think mm-hmm. you can kind of come out of the novel feeling a whole range of ways about about whether or not it's the right thing to do and I I think that is true to life like it's a it's a thing that people are constantly thinking about and memoirists are definitely very brave or very reckless depending on yeah what they're writing about and what yeah. their how their friends and family feel yeah it's a tricky one yeah. isn't it and and I don't think there's any easy answer mm. In, in real life, and there's no easy answer in the animators, certainly. And honestly, it's that's the, the story wouldn't have shared. It wouldn't have served Sharon and Mel. It's not the story that they deserve if, it, if there was any easy answer for what they did or for who they are. Hmm. To end, to wrap up, I'd like to finish by asking you what we always ask our guests on this podcast, and that is, do you have a book recommendation for us? Is there anything that you've read in the last little while um, that you'd like to recommend to our readers? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So when I was flying over to Australia, I was actually reading Lincoln and the Bardo, which I know a lot of people have read, but I mean, it made me cry. It made me cry on two flights, actually. <laughs> the one to the one to Melbourne, because I was reading a part that was beautiful. Mm. And then back in the States, I had a flight from uh, Chicago to San Francisco. And I was kind of blubbering because I was reading a portion that was very sad about mm. Lincoln holding his son's dead body, basically. Yeah. Um, and because it's the book is about his uh, son, um, dying um in the you know high days of the civil war but luckily the lady on the plane next to me on that flight she had read it and she said oh it's okay so so that was nice <laughs> that doesn't always happen so so i just read that and and am in love with it because i just finished it yesterday so oh god i mean everybody's gonna read it i'm sure it's gonna mm. it's gonna win all the the awards so it'll be the one that people get but it's yeah it was gorgeous fantastic <laughs> thank you so much kayla ray whitaker for joining us here on the readings podcast um if you haven't read her debut novel, The Animators, I highly recommend it. It is funny, moving and incredibly empathetic. Um, also, do check out her BuzzFeed piece, How I Learned to Date After Drinking. Um, and thank you so much, Kayla. Thank you, Stella. 